Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Before I get to my sermon, I want to take a moment to say something of the man who stood in this pulpit on most Sundays for 28 years. The Reverend Dr. William R. Klein was a scholar with a poet's sensibility who preached the sermons of an introvert. He would clue his secretary that he was going to go to the boiler room. That told her that he was going to go to a remote and unused room in the church that was completely bare except for a desk, a chair, and a window, and he was not to be disturbed. Then when he preached the next Sunday, the sermon was as much a conversation with God as a message to the congregation. I knew that when I accepted the call to come to Second Presbyterian Church that I would be preaching to a congregation that had been trained by Bill and others to listen closely to sermons. That's why I still get nervous up here. High expectations. And I also knew that because of good leadership, of which Bill was no small part, I was coming to a church that valued youth and families and children, that sought to train the mind as well as the heart, was a congregation that was committed to local missions, and was a strong partner with the seminary that trained most of her pastors, including this one. Dr. Klein, the introvert minister, loved moments of quiet in worship. And so I want to begin my prayer for illumination with a moment of silence in which we can give thanks for Bill's life and ministry before then asking for God's word to be spoken once again from the pulpit where Bill stood so many times. Let us pray. Holy God, in remembering Bill, we thank you for his sharing the gospel in this pulpit and in this place, not only with his words, but also with the witness of his life. Speak now your living word through the words of scripture and sermon to us, and then speak your word through whatever witness to others that is then inspired in us. Amen. Paul writes the church in Philippi, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of Pablo Picasso's art finally makes sense to me. At least I think so. I am thinking of those faces, those portraits that he painted of shattered faces. All the right pieces are in view, brow, nose, mouth, eyes, chin, neck, but they, they don't fit together. They are not in the right places. An eye is high in the forehead, a nose juts off the left side of the face, a mouth is located in the right cheek. These disconnected faces make more sense these days. Because it feels like we are living in a disconnected world. I won't say a lot about it, but politics has disconnected us. The body politic works best when there is a liberal and conservative tension, like eyes balanced on either side of the nose. The body politic is not served when interests break off and then seek to overwhelm each other. I appreciate more than ever those behind-the-scene efforts to get things done because despite the gaslighting and power plays, we have to keep up efforts to stay connected as a nation in this disconnected world. The pandemic has disconnected us. Almost a year ago, when it became clear that it would be a while before my large, close, extended family could gather together again, we organized a family gathering by Zoom. It involved four generations, and my computer screen was absolutely packed with tiny boxes, each with either a face or a family boxed in. We were all, most of us, maybe not my photojournalist brother Thorne, but the rest of us were all new to Zoom back then, and very few of us knew how to mute. The oldest members of my family had a hard time understanding what was said with different people talking at the same time. The whole experience was maybe an audio version of a Picasso portrait, a family broken into Zoom pieces. It wasn't the same as being together, but you know what? It was worth the effort. We keep doing it. We've gotten better at it because it's important that we work to remain connected as a family in a disconnected world. Right now, our church life is an experience of separated pieces and parts. Committees meet by Zoom, visitors visit by phone, and much of giving is done online. Early worship takes place with people separated by empty pews. 11 o'clock worship happens in dens and living rooms and car interiors all over the place. And that 11 o'clock service actually takes place at other hours when people decide to pull it up on YouTube. And yet it's all worth it. Because it's important that this congregation does whatever it can to remain connected in a disconnected world. So I have a better appreciation of Picasso's paintings of disconnected faces. And maybe 
We can all have a better appreciation right now for some of the Apostle Paul's writings because a major theme of his letters was about living in a disconnected world. It partly comes from his own experience, his ministry. He spends his entire ministry as a church planter. He lives for a bit in a town or a city sharing the news of Jesus, building up this community of faith devoted to following in Jesus' way. And then he moves on. The longest that he ever stays in one place is one year and three months. But though he physically moves on, his heart remains with those churches. He wants to stay connected with them. He wants them to stay connected with each other, even though they often have so many reasons not to be, not the least of which was that some churches were so Jewish and some so Gentile and different from each other. But he had this vision of this body politic that was the body of Jesus. And so to stay connected, he does the... He does the only thing that he can do in this world where he doesn't have Zoom and Marco Polo and Instagram, Facebook, email, phone, or rapid transit. He writes letters. As with the family gathering by Zoom, there are challenges to letters that letters have to overcome. You know, it can take months before a letter reaches its destination. The communication also is one way. There's no opportunity for Q&A for a point to be clarified or confusion cleared. And yet, there's magic that comes from the strain of having to do the work to stay connected. The effort needed to cross the divide can make the communication actually more powerful and in its own way more intimate. When Paul sits down to write a letter or when he paces about and has a scribe write the letter for him, he will have given a thought, much advanced thought, into what he wants to say and how he wants to say it and in what order. And then in the moment of composing, of writing, he has to give his complete focus. Parchment paper is not readily available and it's not cheap, so to throw away a draft is a waste of resources. The intimacy of Paul's letters involved more than Paul and the reader, too, because for Paul, writing these letters is like an exercise of prayer. His letters are like the sermons of the introvert minister, as much a conversation with God as they are with the people that he hopes he reads the letter. Paul does his very best to somehow code his mind and his heart within these words so that when the letter is read, the readers will not only get the content, they will encounter him and hopefully encounter God. And meanwhile, the churches that he established, they eagerly await his letters They anticipate the moment when they will hear a word from the one who guided them at the beginning and might offer some guidance now. And then when the day finally arrives, when someone has arrived with one of Paul's letters in hand, a time and a place is set, probably the occasion of Sunday worship or Sabbath worship. Now, they cannot all gather in one place usually, so the letter moves from house church to house church or maybe a synagogue or two, and pieces of the church community listen to the letters which are about keeping those pieces connected. And then, even though the letter may have taken weeks or months to arrive, when they hear the letter read, 
It's as if time and distance disappear and they hear Paul's words spoken to them that day. And if Paul's prayer is answered, they sense God's presence with them and they hear his voice calling them to pull together rather than break apart. And after the letter is read, conversation follows among the listeners as they try together to figure out what it is that Paul is really saying to them. They ask for the letter to be read again so they can take in all its intended meaning and absorb whatever passion or emotion is behind the words. It's work, it's a strain, but it's a strain that gives the letters their power to connect. Fred Craddock described the experience as intimate distance. The very best example of what I'm talking about is the letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians is possibly the warmest letter that Paul ever wrote. Most of Paul's other letters have to deal primarily with some conflict or controversy within the church, but this letter is different. Yes, he does speak to some dissension within the church, but Paul's primary pastoral concern here seems to be fear. You see, there is an added level of disconnection that Paul has to overcome. Even if Paul wanted to, he could not make the best-case scenario six-week trip to see them because he's in Roman custody. He's in prison or maybe under house arrest. It doesn't matter, but he's been incarcerated as a direct result of his being open, his being free about his faith. And he knows that the saints in Philippi are worried that he is going to be persecuted, maybe even killed, and he knows that they are also worried that they might be more persecuted for their faith. Now, maybe threat, maybe danger brings focus to the heart as well as the mind because, oh my goodness, is the intimacy of carefully considered words obvious in the way that Paul begins his letter to the church in Philippi? Do you remember how it begins? He says, every time I think of you, I thank God. Both the last sermon I preached at First Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee, and the last sermon I preached at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, were based on this passage because I knew that every time that I was going to remember my life and ministry with those two wonderful congregations, I would thank God that I had this incredible privilege of sharing a life and a ministry with them. I planned to preach this sermon before Bill Klein died. But I think that that verse also speaks to those who knew and loved him. It speaks for everyone who's ever learned of a death of someone who lived a long life and who had a a positive and important impact on their lives. The news is sad, but it's also an opportunity for thanksgiving. It's an opportunity to excavate memories of why it was so wonderful and so important that the one who died lived. With at least the possibility of death providing focus, Paul gives thanks. Remembering the Philippian church reminds him why his ministry among them was worth it, even though it led in part to his now being in a jail cell. He thanks God because they together shared in the gospel with each other and shared the gospel with others around them. 
They shared in something that God will see to completion even if they do not live to see it. But they're a part of it. In fact, present tense. They are sharing in the gospel even now in the reading of that letter. How so? Because, Paul says, he knows that they hold him in their heart and he holds them in his heart. They pray to the same God constantly. They pray for each other and together they're going to be brave, living in the open as followers of Jesus, whether that's in Rome or in Philippi. This is obviously a love letter. Not the love of romance, but the love of Jesus. They love each other, Paul says, with God's kind of love, his kind of compassion. It's that that selfless love that's for the sake of the other and for the sake of the world. A sacrificial love that pays a cost so that healing can happen. A love that cannot be locked away and should not be hidden. It should not be hidden, Paul says, because we live in this world that is disconnected by sin and the broken world simply won't last without the reconciling work of God's love. Paul's view that the world is broken by sin is reflected throughout his writings. He writes of the waste that comes of greed and hoarding, of abuses of power and of weakly accepting that abuse. He writes of broken promises and broken hearts and broken families and broken communities. Bringing healing to those broken places is why Jesus lived and was why he died. And it's why Paul later may die. So God, whose love the Philippians know, wants them to show that love to the broken world by being a part of the world's healing because that's why the gospel came to them in the first place. Not to be hoarded, but to be shared. Can you see why this letter can speak so powerfully to us today? Yes, we live in a disconnected world made more obvious than normal, I think, by polarizing politics and the distancing of the pandemic. But if we seek the intimacy of God's love shared with each other and with the world, we we got to focus. And we've got to strain to make sure that we find love's connection in this disconnected world. As I said in the last four sermons I preached, it's got to begin within. It begins with your knowing that God knows you as you are and that God loves you. And that love can heal your personal fragmentation. It then involves the strain that comes with loving others the way that God loves us to see past others' faults and sins, to overcome the distance between us, to follow those cords of empathy and compassion, to shared humanity. It requires focus and strain. And yet, ironically, it's the focus and the strain to bridge the distance that creates the intimacy. And so it is with God. Yes, we'd all like to have the advantage of the early disciples who walked and lived with Jesus. They could 
hear his words. They could see with their own eyes the example he set in, in his dealings with his family and friends and crowds and enemies. But we need to remember that those disciples who lived with Jesus came to understand him and know him better after he was physically gone. Perhaps his physical presence was too easy. It was the strain of separation when they strained to hear the voice of the Spirit and to recognize his presence in the world around them that they really came to know Jesus and love him in a way that they could not when he was live and among them. That intimacy I'm talking about is what we call faith. Let's remember that. Let's remember that especially when others try to make things easy for us again, that if Jesus can't be right there in front of us, this powerful person, whether it's a preacher or a politician or a charismatic personality or friend, tries to tell you exactly where God stands, who God loves and hates, who to support or dismiss, and what to think. That's not their right. And it's too easy, and it gets in the way of your faith. You need to excavate your memories. Remember the Jesus that we know in Scripture, not the Jesus of political or celebrity imagination. Remember the evidence that we see there of what it means to be a follower of his in this world. Remember the evidence of the Holy Spirit seen in the examples of those who have lived and loved well following him. Remember in particular the reconcilers. The Gospel of Matthew is right. They're the ones who show us what it means to be children of God. I cannot wait until we're all back together again. But let's see the separation that we deal with right now as an opportunity. Let's focus on staying connected in a disconnected world with each other and with God. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.